What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and today I'm going to be covering what I believe to be one of the most dangerous cults to ever exist, the deadly Om Shinrikyo cult, as well as the 1995 Tokyo Sarin gas attacks. If you're wondering what Om Shinrikyo stands for, it basically means religion of truth or supreme truth. And to be quite honest, this cult was perhaps one of the most ambitious cults of all time. Om Shinrikyo's main goal was to end the world as we know it. And the man leading this deadly cult is none other than their blind and charismatic leader, Shoko Asahara, who actually came from humble beginnings but then rose to become one of the worst domestic terrorists that Japan has ever seen. But before we get into today's episode, I quickly wanted to thank everybody for the feedback on last week's episode with my new co-host and producer, Austin. Thank you all so much for all the kind words and welcoming him to the show, and better yet, telling me that you actually like hearing his voice because... I was very, very picky about who I was going to bring onto the show, and I wanted to make sure that whoever it was really matched the vibe and really played well with my voice. So I'm very happy that you guys enjoyed him so much. Unfortunately, he will not be joining me full-time until the new year, as he has to move from Michigan to Colorado, and so there's a bit of a process there with that, but he will be back for an episode in December, which I'm very excited about. But until then, it will be just me and Annabelle, I'm afraid. She uh, is quite jealous and keeps giving me dirty looks. So pray for me. But one last thing before we dive into the episode, I did want to mention that our Black Friday sale for merch has started. All of the merch for all the shows, which... I'm a part of another podcast, if you didn't know, called Mile Higher Podcast, which is more of a true crime podcast with some more unexplained elements mixed in. But we have merch for that show, this show, at milehiremerch.com. It's all on sale. It's the biggest sale of the year. Go take advantage of it because once we sell out, we're not restocking any of the designs on there because we got some new stuff coming in the future. Go check it out. We ship worldwide, free shipping over $100 domestically. And it's really good quality. I'm wearing one of my favorite designs today. So go check it out, mileharmerch.com. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Warby Parker, Raycon, Storyworth, and the Cold Podcast. But as with any cult that we've covered here on Lights Out, I think it's always important to start with the leader. The one who formed the cult. The one who came up with the ideals behind it. And that's what we're going to primarily focus on today, is the leader of Om Shinrikyo. And that is Shoko Asahara, which again, this is a cult originating in Japan. During this episode, I will be attempting to say a lot of different Japanese names and places, and I will do my best to pronounce them correctly, but there is a possibility I will just straight up butcher some of these. So please be mindful that I'm doing my best. 
So let's start with Shoko Asahara. He was actually born with the name Chizio Matsumoto on March 2nd, 1955. He lived in the Kumamoto, near the southeastern edge of Japan. He was actually the fourth son born into a large family of nine children, and he grew up incredibly poor. His father was a tatami mat maker, which many Japanese houses used as flooring material. Not only was Shoko poor growing up, but he was also blind. He suffered from infantile glycoma from birth, which made him lose all of his sight in his left eye and most of his sight in his right eye. Since he couldn't follow the family trade of mat making, which would be difficult, his family had no use for him. So when he was only six years old, they sent him to a state-run school for the blind. And from then on, he never lived with his family again. But despite his struggles, he was an intelligent and charismatic student. Since he was one of the few who could still partially see in school, he made money by guiding his blind classmates to a local snack shop. Shoko was fairly popular, but others say he also used his advantages to bully and manipulate classmates. He was actually known for beating up other students and stealing their money at an early age. He also developed a fantasy about becoming the leader of a kingdom of intelligent robots. And he often told his classmates that he had a dream of becoming the Prime Minister of Japan. His teachers noticed his love for violence, power, and leadership throughout the years. And he actually went on to graduate in 1977. Afterward, he failed to get into law and medical school, which were his first choices. He desperately wanted to become a politician, but his dreams fell apart when he was rejected. So he ended up turning his interest toward acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine, as this was a common career for many of the other blind students in Japan during the time. While studying Eastern traditional healing practices, he married a woman named Tomoko in 1978. Officially, they had a total of 12 children together, but the family reports that he had 15 children in total. After they married, they moved to Chiba, south of Tokyo, to settle down. And there, he opened up his own medical practice and began selling unregulated drugs to his patients. Eventually, authorities cracked down on his practice, and in 1981, they actually convicted him of practicing pharmacy without a license and selling unregulated drugs. He was fined about $260,000 yen, which is roughly $2,280 in US dollars. Although his private practice might have ended early, Shoko was about to take on his biggest project yet. He saw his failure as a new opportunity, and he dove into a religious awakening. The spiritual tides in Japan had shifted dramatically in the 1980s. The country hopped on the bandwagon of consumerism and became one of the largest economies in the world. But there was a backlash to this consumerism. People saw it as a shallow way of living. So many began looking inward, searching for spiritual answers in their day-to-day -day life. So in response to this soulless consumerism, a massive religious awakening spread across Japan during the 1980s. A ton of new religions were formed, and many people were ready to open themselves up to new ideas. So Shoko realized that there was an opportunity here, and he took advantage of this. He first began studying things like Chinese astrology and Taoism before diving into yoga, meditation, and other forms of religion, especially ones that required initiations and secret traditions. He also started getting into Egon Shu, a mixture of Buddhism and Hinduism. 
Aegon Shu had started in 1954, but was officially recognized as a religion in 1981. He became a devout follower, but after years of practice, he wanted to become a leader. He initially opened a yoga school, but that quickly failed. He thought that new religions were the future, so he left the church and formed his own religion. He told his wife, Tomoko, that he was going through a spiritual crisis and he needed to find himself. So he actually left his wife and his kids and went to live in India for two years. While there, he spent his time studying as many religious texts as he could, while also growing out his hair, as well as his beard. During his time studying, he slowly took on the look of a guru. His hair grew past his shoulders and his beard grew down to his belly. And after a few years, he claimed to have reached enlightenment during his pilgrimage. He even met the 14th Dalai Lama, and he later claimed that the Dalai Lama gave him a mission to preach, quote-unquote, real Buddhism in Japan. But years later, the Dalai Lama only said that he had met a strange Japanese man, and he had never given him any sort of mission. Shoko also claimed that during his time in India, he met Shiva, one of the main gods of Hinduism. After his pilgrimage, Shoko returned to Japan in 1984, and in September of that year, he was ready to become a leader. So he formed a religion he eventually named Om Shinrikyo. The name roughly translates to the supreme truth of the universe. Pretty bold claim. This was around the same time that he also changed his own name to Shoko Asahara. But Shoko means an offering of incense, and Asahara was an aristocratic last name, unlike Matsumoto, which was a name usually tied to the working class, as he wanted to distance himself from his poor upbringing and attract people who had a lot of money. With his new name and his new religion, he went out to the streets, started preaching his new teachings and handing out pamphlets to everyone who passed by. He drew people in with his charisma and his passionate way of speaking. If he didn't have a talent for public speaking, most people would have ignored the strange blind man on the corner shouting about religion, but he spoke in a way that people couldn't ignore him. And he began spreading his beliefs, which were a combination of ideologies. He actually even drew from Christianity, especially the end times theology from the Book of Revelations. He also took pieces from Hindu creation myths, Buddhism, yoga, meditation, Nostradamus's prophecies, and other Western religious movements. And in the end, his goal is to become rich and powerful. And he wanted the ability to control his followers, which he clearly got the perfect recipe. He designed a system similar to Scientology, where his followers would have to buy into the religion to get to the next spiritual rank. And he made this as expensive as he possibly could. Social outcasts who had enough money bought into his scheme, and they followed him blindly. He lured them with a sense of belonging and purpose, and he claimed that it was his job to take out the sins from the world, and he even convinced them that he could heal them and forgive their sins as well. In a manifesto, he wrote about a doomsday prophecy claiming that a third world war would be started by the United States. He said they would begin a nuclear strike against Japan in 1997, and the world would fall into a nuclear apocalypse. But he promised that if people followed him, they would survive the end times and repopulate the world. His ideas and his promises were controversial, but that's exactly why it drew people's attentions. Alm Shinrikyo ended up attracting thousands of educated people, 
with a lot of money, and Shoko only allowed wealthy people to join him. His religion soon became a status symbol in a private group that only the elite of Japanese society could join. And by 1986, Japan's economy boomed, and there were plenty of wealthy people willing to join. Om Shinrikyo. The key to his success had a lot to do with his marketing. He specifically targeted socially isolated college students looking for meaning in their lives. And once they wanted to join the group, they were forced to cut contact with all their family members and friends and donate all their belongings to the cult. As many cults do, they make you go through a series of rituals. And Om Shinrikyo was no different. New members' individual identities were slowly erased, as the goal was for them to become extensions of Shoko, and they had to forget their previous lives and accept their new one. They were all even required to wear the same white yoga outfits, and sometimes they even wore masks that modeled Shoko's face. During rituals, they even wore these weird helmets that were connected by cables that were meant to harmonize their thoughts with Shoko's, which they honestly look like some type of experimental MK Ultra shit. And by the end of their initiations, they were no longer individuals. In fact, they were now one with Shoko himself. As Om Shinrikyo's following grew, the rituals and practices also evolved. Some of the rituals made followers go through a series of torture tests that proved their strength of will. Some were even forced to drink Shoko's blood or dirty bath water, which can't even imagine. But you know what? You'd do it if it meant you got to be one with the leader. They'd even make soup from his hair and then drink it. And they kissed his big toe as a sign of devotion. Some were also forced to bathe in boiling water which has caused many of his followers to have third-degree burns all across their bodies. And one of his followers even died from their wounds. The rituals were strict, and so were the rules. Sex and marriage were banned for everyone except Shoko. He would often have sex with the female recruits during initiation, and he collected samples of their pubic hair and kept them for himself. But not everyone was comfortable with what was going on. After realizing some of the horrors of initiation... Some of the members had second thoughts about the cult. But if they ever tried to leave, they would be abducted and then taken back to the compounds where they were imprisoned and many were even injected with LSD. While they were locked away in tiny holding cells, they were subject to light, food, and sleep deprivation. Many were also beaten with rods and stun guns. Sometimes they were even injected with lethal poison or strangled to death if they chose to not rejoin the cult. Shoko had built a strong inner circle of followers who were willing to do his evil bidding because they truly believed in Shoko and everything that he preached. They saw him as a spiritual prophet who had access to the divine world. He even convinced his followers that he could levitate in the air for hours at a time. And he also made them believe that he could read their minds. Those who bought into Aum Shinrikyo saw Shoko as a living god. By the late 1980s, Shoko had gathered nearly 10,000 followers. Japan's economy was at an all-time high, and the wealthy were willing to buy their way into his religion. He attracted rich college students by using new media like TV, anime, manga, as propaganda for his religion. Aum Shinrikyo had become such a large movement, he even spread to Germany and the United States. As the group grew, so did its property. 
The cult purchased several compounds around Tokyo where many of the followers lived in communes and held massive ceremonies, and they also rented commercial space in downtown skyscrapers. As his followers and his property ownership spread across Japan, so did his criminal enterprise. In private, he told his closest friends that one day, he would become the king of Japan, and before doomsday would come, he would be the leader of an empire. But if he was going to become the king of Japan, he needed money. So he persuaded his followers to extort money and even kidnap relatives and hold them for ransom. They even laundered all the money through a series of stores with the help of the Yakuza so they could avoid taxes and keep the money hidden from the Japanese government. So now getting involved with organized crime, Shoko's empire grew and he knew that under Japanese law there was no difference between a long-established religion nor a brand new cult. So Shoko applied for Aum Shinrikyo to become a legal religious association in 1987. And believe it or not, by 1989, the status was granted. So now, this cult was exempt from taxation, and the money just came pouring in. And by the end of the decade, his religion was worth nearly one billion U.S. dollars. And more importantly, he was willing to do anything to protect his newfound empire. By the end of 1989, his religion had gained negative attention surrounding the living conditions in the communes as well as the rumors that the cult was abducting defectors. So the families of the defectors hired a lawyer named Tsutsumi Sakamoto, and he had recently gained popularity in the local news for being an anti-cult lawyer who successfully led a lawsuit against the Unification Church. This was another religious organization from South Korea that was led by a different man who claimed to be the Messiah. The lawyer now planned on taking down Om Shinrikyo. First, he tried to publicly embarrass Shoko by requesting a sample of his blood. Since Shoko claimed to be a god with special powers and he claimed that a blood test would reveal that Shoko wasn't an ordinary man. And as it turned out, the blood test came back and it contained nothing special. Susumi planned on taking this to a Tokyo broadcasting station and revealing that Om Shinrikyo was a scam. But a few of the cult's followers worked in the broadcasting station and found out about his plan. They successfully threatened the station to not air the lawyer's interview. And on November 3, 1989, four cult members were sent to abduct Tsutsumi at a local train station. But when they got to the station, he never arrived because he had taken the day off. So instead, the four cultists went to his home and entered through an unlocked door. They then snuck into Tsutsumi's bedroom, where he slept quietly next to his wife and they took a hammer and swung it straight into Tsutsumi's head. But he didn't die. The sound of the metal hammer hitting his skull immediately woke up his wife, and she saw the four cultists standing over the bed. She screamed, and they both tried to put up a fight, but the cultists overpowered them. Once they wrestled them to the floor, they also found Tsutsumi's infant son sleeping in a crib. They then pulled out a syringe and injected the child with potassium chloride, which this quickly killed the child and they covered his face with a cloth. Then they injected the parents with the same substance. Tsutsumi's wife died soon after, but the dose they had given him hadn't been enough to kill him, so the cultists ended up strangling him to death. After they murdered the entire family, they took all three bodies and wrapped them in bedsheets, and they hauled them back to their cars where they dumped them in the trunks and then took them to the cult's headquarters. They then burned the bedsheets and destroyed the tools they used to murder the family. And to cover up the forensic evidence, they smashed Tsutsumi and his wife's teeth until they were unrecognizable. 
They put each body into a metal drum and then buried them separately across three different prefectures. After the murders, the police didn't make a connection between the lawyer and Om Shinrikyo. So the case went unsolved for years. It wasn't until much later that the cultists finally admitted to the murders in 1995. After disposing of the lawyer and his family in 1990, the power had gone to Shoko's head. His religion had a ton of money, and they could even get away with murder, it seemed. He thought he was unstoppable and quickly on his way to becoming the king or supreme ruler of Japan. So he started his own political party called Truth, and he aimed to become the next prime minister in the general election. He also made sure to get 24 of his followers on the next ballot. His political party had no plan, and his campaign was weak. The only campaigning they did was wear masks that looked like him, and they marched through the streets chanting his name. And despite the lack of a campaign strategy, Shoko had convinced himself he could easily get elected. In the end, his campaign failed terribly, and he was nowhere close to becoming a part of the Japanese parliament. None of the 24 members were elected either. Between all of them, they only managed to get about 1,700 votes. His dreams of becoming king fell apart, but he had no intention of giving up on his religion. After the loss, he took a group of 1,000 followers and retreated to an island off the coast of the mainland. The media kept close tabs on him, as they suspected that he might stage a mass suicide just like Jim Jones did in 1978. But Shoko's journey wasn't over yet. He accepted the fact that Japan wasn't going to elect him. He understood that him and his followers were outcasts, so he told his followers that he would be rejected and martyred just like Jesus Christ. Rumors quickly began spreading about his declining health, which he kept a secret. He said it was only a result of giving his strength to his followers. During this time, he also changed his thoughts on the end of the world. He claimed that instead of the United States beginning a war, Om Shinrikyo would start it, and the world would end from a massive chemical attack on April 15, 1995. Seeing that his leadership and his religion weren't openly accepted by Japanese society, Shoko doubled down. If they weren't going to be accepted, then they would take pride in being outcasts. Shoko used this to change the narrative for Om Shinrikyo. His sermons began to dive deeper into conspiracy theories, and he believed that Jewish people, Freemasons, the Dutch, the British monarchy, and other Japanese cults actively plotted against his religion. He convinced his followers that basically everyone outside of the group were now his enemies. While they took their pilgrimage to India, he preached that the end was drawing near and they needed to prepare for war. At the turn of the decade, Om Shinrikyo began plotting their attacks. They used members who had government connections to get their hands on biological and chemical weapons like botulinum and anthrax. They targeted several Tokyo landmarks and two U.S. bases in Japan with botulinum, and they released the toxins into the air from trucks they had modified themselves. Luckily, they didn't harm anyone in the attacks because they didn't realize that their strain of botulinum was non-lethal. This would become the first of many failures during Om Shinrikyo's attacks. They had cultivated the bacteria in large vertical stainless steel drums, and the drums were filled with a tube so that air would enter the drum while the truck moved. Another tube was attached to the drum that led to a disperser on the back of the truck. So as the truck moved, the botulinum sprayed from the back of the truck. But since all of their attacks had failed, they began redesigning the trucks for chemical weapons rather than biological ones. They also tried to spray anthrax from the top of Tokyo skyscrapers, 
but again, they failed to do any harm. Shoko was disappointed in their failure to kill anyone, and he knew that they had to get smart about their next attacks if they are going to cause any real damage. So in 1991, the group expanded into Russia, where they tried to hire physics Nobel Prize winner Nikolai Basov. He was known for his work in quantum electronics that led to the development of the laser. And they wanted him to create an advanced weapon system for the cult, such as a high-powered laser that could be operated remotely inside a glove box. But of course, he refused. They tried to make some weapons themselves, and they even built a weapons factory in Ishikawa Prefecture. And they even tried to reverse engineer the AK-47 rifles, but failed. Their goal was to manufacture 1,000 assault rifles, but they only managed to make one. But this didn't stop them from obtaining other weapons. Holmes' construction minister took an interest in Russian weapons, and he took the lead on cutting deals with weapon contractors. Eventually, he got his hands on an MI-17 attack helicopter and brought it through Japanese customs in 1994. Which, how the hell did that happen? He also invited several Russian engineers to Japan so they could help maintain the helicopter. Many allegations suggested that Ohm was transporting its followers to Russia for military training, which involved helicopter pilot lessons, tank ride-alongs, assault rifle training, and rocket launcher training. Other followers also stole blueprints for building tanks and artillery weapons from a military contractor, hoping that one day they could build this unstoppable army. They even sent a team to study Nikola Tesla's work in his museum in Belgrade, Serbia, with the hopes of creating an earthquake machine. But again, they failed. And they even sent another team to try and collect an Ebola strain in Sahara, which is the present-day Democratic Republic of Congo. They also used their offices in the U.S. to get random equipment for their war. As early as 1987, Ohm Shinrikyo had established an office in New York City. At first, it appeared like the office was only meant for recruitment and a place to manage their book sales. But years later, investigations uncovered that they were trying to acquire high-tech equipment computer software, and gas masks. But all this equipment would cost a ton of money. So they financed many of their research and development teams by selling drugs and teaming up with Japanese organized gangs. Om Shinrikyo set up the deals, and the Yakuza brought the muscle. After saving enough money, they spent a lot of it on $48,000 acre plot of land in Western Australia along with mining licenses and equipment. There, they planned on mining uranium in order to build a bomb, but they realized that the mining equipment was going to be too expensive. They had spent nearly $35,000 to buy mining equipment and transport it to Australia, and Ohm leaders didn't know if it would be worth the cost. Shoko considered somehow getting uranium or nuclear weapons from North Korea or Russian mobsters, but failed. If he ever did get his hands on nuclear weapons, his plan was to launch missiles at Washington, D.C., the World Trade Center, and Disneyland in order to begin a nuclear holocaust. But since nuclear weapons were incredibly difficult to get, thank God, they turned their efforts towards producing poisons, such as VX nerve gas, phosgene, Zyklon B, and sarin gas. They then began using their property in Australia to test sarin gas on sheep, and they saw how deadly it could be. They also successfully redesigned their trucks to disperse the chemicals. They contained the gas in a single box in the cargo area of the truck. There was a heat source at the base of the box and a chimney that led up to the top of the truck where the gas came out. It was a very simple design and they hoped that it would work. 
After redesigning and testing their new weapons, they were ready to terrorize their enemies. And after years of failed attacks and assassination attempts, Om Shinrikyo finally succeeded in their first terrorist attack in 1994. On June 17th, Om Shinrikyo sent their modified truck to Matsumoto Nagano Prefecture. As it rolled down the streets, it released clouds of siren gas into the quiet neighborhood. They targeted this neighborhood because it was near the house of a judge that was overseeing a real estate dispute involving the cult. People who had their windows open on this nice summer day began smelling a foul smell, and soon they began experiencing blurry vision, nausea, and coughing. And soon the whole neighborhood knew something was terribly wrong. The judge and his family, who they were actually targeting, ended up unharmed since they had their windows closed. But the gas cloud ended up spilling through the neighborhood, killing seven people, and over 500 people were injured. One of the local residents, Yoshiyoki Kuno, had called the police during the attack. He told them that something was wrong with his wife and he begged them to save her. After a severe coughing fit, she had collapsed to the floor and eventually fell into a coma. After the police searched his home, they found a large number of pesticides that he had had in storage. So the police actually arrested him and accused him of the attack, and the local media quickly followed suit. The second largest newspaper in the area, Asihi Shimbom, spread false information that nerve agents could be synthesized from pesticides, so everyone thought that Yoshiyuki was guilty. They called him the poison gas man even after the police discovered that sarin gas was used and sarin gas couldn't be made from pesticides. So they knew it wasn't him. So they released him from jail, but the harassment didn't stop. For several weeks, he kept receiving hate mail and death threats, and the police still had no idea that the Om Shinrikyo cult was behind the attacks. Meanwhile, Shoko felt invincible after poisoning 500 people, killing seven and getting away with it. He saw how effective poisonous gas could be, so he began planning an even bigger attack, one that would hopefully trigger Doomsday. On July 9th, dozens more suffered similar symptoms in a different village just north of Tokyo, but luckily no one died. The cultists had accidentally spilled a large amount of sarin gas at one of their facilities. The locals blamed the nearby Om Shinrikyo facilities. Eyewitnesses claimed to have seen the cult members wearing gas masks near the time of the incident, and soon after the spill, vegetation near the facility began dying. The locals called the police, but the cultists denied them entry when they arrived. So the police simply left, and they didn't look into it any further. They thought it was only an accident, and not a planned attack. Many thought their previous targets were chosen because of land disputes, arguments over building permits, or general harassment by the cult members, and the reign of terror continued through the rest of 1994. They also tried to assassinate a number of people with VX, which is a chemical nerve agent. This chemical became famous for killing Kim Jong-un's half-brother in 2017. Among their targets were outspoken critics of Aum Shinrikyo, people who sheltered cult defectors and rival cult leaders. The first person in history to ever be killed by a VX attack was Takahito Hamaguchi on December 10, 1994. Shoko had suspected him of being a police informant, so he sent his followers to kill him. Two cultists stalked him early in the morning around 7 a.m. He walked down the street when one of the cultists ran up behind him and sprinkled the nerve agent on his neck. 
He then turned around and chased after them, but after running nearly 100 feet, he collapsed to the ground. He then fell into a deep coma and was hospitalized for 10 days before dying. At the time, no one had any idea how he died. Most of the time, the cultists didn't leave any trace on their victims. In February 1995, cultists kidnapped a brother of a defector that had recently escaped. They took him to an Ulm Shinrikyo compound where they violently interrogated him about his sister's whereabouts. After the cultists beat him mercilessly for several hours, he eventually died from his wounds. Supposedly, he had been receiving threatening phone calls, and he also left a note that said if he disappeared, it was because of Ulm Shinrikyo. They took his body to the basement of the compound and destroyed it in a microwave-powered incinerator and spread his ashes in Lake Kawaguchi. This wasn't the first time that they had used a microwave incinerator in the basement of one of their compounds, and it wasn't the last. They had killed a handful of their own followers and burned their bodies to hide the evidence. Their ashes were scattered into local waterways, never to be seen again. And anyone who suspected of working against the cult, either friend or foe, was murdered and disposed of immediately. As the cult's victim count rose, police gained some momentum on the case. By 1995, they finally began to connect the dots between Ulm Shinrikyo and the chemical attacks. And by February of 1995, a chemical weapons expert believed that the previous attacks were test runs for a large-scale attack. But the police were slow to do anything about it. They eventually made their plans to raid several cult facilities in March 1995. But some believe that Shoko was tipped off about the raids so he sped up his plans for the next chemical attacks. Since they were unsuccessful at building military rifles, tanks, and bombs, his best weapon was poison gas. And this was the weapon he would end up choosing to bring about his doomsday plan. They could easily manufacture chemical weapons on their properties, and it was difficult to trace back to them. They had stockpiled enough to wreak havoc on Tokyo, and that's exactly what he planned on doing. So on March 5th, Several passengers on a local subway line begin vomiting, and the whites of their eyes turn red. Ulm Shinrikyo was suspected, but police struggled to connect the evidence. A few weeks later, on March 13th, three separate suitcases were found near a ticket machine in another Tokyo station near National Assembly. The suitcases were filled with botulinum and designed to disperse gas, but they failed to go off and didn't harm anyone. Again, police suspected the cult was at work. Now that the police were catching on to Ulm Shinrikyo, they requested thousands of gas masks and hazmat suits, and they also began practicing raids on cult facilities. They suspected that a small-scale war was coming, and they prepared for the worse. Before Ulm Shinrikyo could carry out their doomsday attack, police made their first raid on one of their compounds. On March 19th, police seized one of their facilities in Osaka. They had gotten a report from a family that one of their relatives was being held against their will inside. Unknown to the family or police, the person they were looking for had already been killed and disposed of. After hearing about the raids, Shoko feared that this was the beginning of the end, so he quickly set his biggest plans into motion. On that same day, the cultists bombed their own base in a district of Tokyo and tried to make it look like police were beginning a violent siege on their property. The next day on March 20th, Ulm Shinrikyo carried out their biggest attack to date. 
five cultists who were close to Shoko carried out a massive attack on the Tokyo subway system. Five others acted as drivers and lookouts. They had planned the attack for about a week, and Shoko wanted this to be the doomsday trigger. While their previous attacks targeted their enemies, this one was only meant to cause terror. During the morning rush hour, the Tokyo subway system was one of the busiest in the world. Over 5 million people use the subway every single day, and Shoko's goal was to kill tens of thousands of people at least. They had been producing sarin gas for months, and Shoko had faith in their plan. Each cultist entered different parts of the subway system around 7 a.m. Their targets were five trains that ran on three major lines in Tokyo. The cultists dressed in regular clothes. They carried umbrellas and blended in with everyone else. The only things that stood out at the time were their surgical masks. Those were commonly used during cold and flu season. They carried bags filled with sarin gas and they placed them on the ground beside their feet or on baggage racks. They brought newspapers and magazines to cover the bags so they didn't look suspicious. And before leaving the subway, they pierced the bags with the tips of their umbrellas, slowly releasing the gas into the air. They fled the subway stations and were driven back to a special hideout where they were injected with an antidote for sarin gas poisoning. They changed their clothes and burned the ones that they wore along with the umbrellas. Meanwhile, back in the subway tunnels, each of the five subway cars converged on one of the largest stations in Tokyo. The station sits in the heart of Tokyo's government district, within walking distance of several government buildings, including the Tokyo Police Station and the National Police Agency, which is similar to America's FBI. Many of the subway passengers were government employees, and within minutes the passengers noticed a faint smell in the air, and as time passed, they became nauseous and their vision blurred. A horrible stench then filled the subway system, and soon everyone began panicking. Many found it difficult to breathe, and the harder they breathed, the more their lungs hurt. Some of the passengers began screaming and throwing fits, while others vomited blood. And by 8.02 a.m., subway workers reported what was happening. And once word got to the subway authorities, they decided to shut down the subway lines. This left many of the subway trains stranded in the middle of the tracks, with sarin gas filling the tunnels. At first, hundreds were poisoned. But as the gas filled the subway cars, thousands of people began coughing and vomiting. They lost hand-eye coordination and others fell to the floor, unable to move at all. The ones who could still move clawed at the subway cart doors, trying to escape into the tunnels. At one station, subway employees identified a bag as the gas source and tried to move it to a safer location. But within minutes, two of the employees died. Many escaped from the driveway carts, ran through the tunnels, and then reached the terminals. And as they ran up the stairs to ground level, they didn't realize that they were carrying the sarin gas with them as it hung onto their clothes and their hair and they spread it to everyone nearby. So even more people became infected. We're talking thousands of people. As first responders and paramedics arrived, they didn't understand the situation. They had no idea that sarin gas was spreading everywhere they could see. So while they treated the victims, they themselves were also being affected. The gas damaged their nervous system, and many began coughing and others collapsed to the ground. The mayhem and panic went on for hours as paramedics rushed victims to the hospitals, and in the end, nearly 6,000 people were hospitalized. This was considered the largest disruption in Tokyo since the firebombing by the U.S. Air Force 
1945. Many of the victims permanently lost their vision and suffered severe brain damage. Luckily, a clinical professor who had treated the victims from Aum Shinrikyo's previous attack in Matsumoto knew exactly how to treat the patients, and he became an expert on treating the effects of sarin gas. So once he heard what was going on, he contacted every hospital in Tokyo and gave them detailed instructions on how to treat sarin gas poisoning. Despite Aum Shinrikyo's best attempt at starting World War III, only 13 people died from the Tokyo subway attacks. Since the cultists had created an inferior batch, sarin gas, and the punctured holes in the bags were too small, they only caused a fraction of the potential terror. They could have easily killed thousands, but their plans failed horribly. And when all was said and done, Shoko was extremely disappointed. It wasn't the beginning of the apocalypse like he had always hoped for. This episode of Lights Out is also brought to you by The Cold Podcast. Cherie Warren was a young mother looking for a fresh start. Recently divorced, she had moved out, found a great new job, and even found a new boyfriend. She was happy for the first time in a long time. But on a crisp October evening after a long day, Cherie said goodbye to her coworkers, left the office. It was never heard from again. All eyes quickly turned towards her ex-husband. He had previously lured another woman into the woods, beating her with a tire iron, but there was another man that piqued the interest of investigators. Cherie's new boyfriend, who's a former reserve police officer with a dark history of sexual violence. The two men closest to Cherie swore they loved her and promised to protect her, but did one of them murder her? In season three of the hit true crime podcast, Cold, host Dave Cauley digs into what really happened. Hey, Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, Cold, in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. After these horrific subway attacks, it didn't take long for Tokyo authorities to accuse Aum Shinrikyo of the attack. Shoko went into hiding and police had trouble finding him. Beginning on March 23rd, police began raiding hundreds of Aum Shinrikyo properties. In one of their New York offices, a scrap of paper was found that was an English translation of Shoko's defense against the attacks. He claimed that he was attacked by poisonous gas along with the hundreds of his disciples. He also explained why they had stockpiles of chemicals and he claimed that they were for legitimate manufacturing purposes. But experts quickly pointed out that the various chemicals that they had stockpiled were specifically for making chemical weapons such as sarin and cyanide gas. Over the next several months, the police raided over 300 properties and confiscated 66,000 items from Aum Shinrikyo. In all, some report that 200 followers were arrested, while others say that nearly 400 were arrested in 240 separate cases. This included many who were close to Shoko himself. The range of offenses included murder, conspiracy, kidnapping, assault, obstruction of justice, harboring, and theft. But even with hundreds of cultists behind bars, Aum Shinrikyo's violence didn't end. On March 30th, 10 days after the attack on the Tokyo subway system, the commissioner general of the National Police Agency was shot by a cult assassin. He was leaving his house and headed for work when a cultist came up and shot him three times with a revolver. Four more shots rang out before the cultist fled the scene on bicycle. Luckily, the commissioner general ended up surviving the three gunshot wounds. 
A few weeks later, on April 15, 1995, the entire country of Japan was on alert, as this was the day that Shoko claimed would be the beginning of the end of the world. Over 20,000 additional Tokyo police were deployed in full riot gear, bulletproof vests, and gas masks. Many store owners closed their shops and many people stayed home from work while also avoiding the subway system. But despite Shoko's claim of this being the end of the world, absolutely nothing happened on April 15th. Four days later on April 19th, a copycat attacked another railway station with phosgene gas. More than 500 people were affected and taken to hospitals. Their eyes stung, their throats hurt, and many experienced dizziness and nausea. But in the end, police identified the attacker as someone outside of Om Shinrikyo. Then on April 23rd, Om Shinrikyo's science and technology minister was violently stabbed to death outside of the cult's headquarters in Tokyo. Hiroyuki Jo stabbed him in front of hundreds of police and cameramen. But weeks later, authorities suspected that the attacker was sent by a Japanese organized crime, and many suspected that Shoko had ordered his minister to be killed so he wouldn't talk to police. On May 5th, the cult attacked Shinjuku Station. That morning, cultists left a cyanide bomb in a public restroom near the air ducts of the station. When the cultists tried to set off the attack, the detonator failed and lit the bags of cyanide on fire. If this attack had been successful, it could have killed between 10,000 20,000 people. But yet again, Om Shinrikyo had failed. Eleven days later, on May 16th, police found Shoko hiding behind a false wall in an Om Shinrikyo complex. He was found holding a small bottle of pubic hair, and each was labeled with the name of a woman follower he had slept with. Can you imagine that sight? Police immediately arrested him and took him into custody. His trial was then set for October 26th. In retaliation, Coltis actually mailed a letter bomb to the governor of Metropolitan Tokyo. The bomb exploded in the hands of a secretary, blowing off the fingers of her left hand as she opened the letter. Even with Shoko in custody and much of the cult's leadership in jail, the attacks continued. On July 4th, four hydrogen cyanide devices were found in bathrooms at three separate subway stations and one railway station. The devices were similar to the previous attempt, but again, they failed to go off. It's estimated that nearly 100,000 people could have died if these devices didn't fail. This, fortunately, was the last attempt Om Shinrikyo made to begin their doomsday prophecy. And so, doomsday never came. With their leader behind bars, the strength of Om Shinrikyo fell apart. Many of the higher-up members that hadn't been arrested yet went on the run. And the last wasn't actually caught until 2012. As a large-scale investigation of this group carried on, 54 of its members had been declared missing by their relatives. 18 were confirmed to have died inside of the group's facilities. Four died at hospitals and eight were killed in supposed accidents during training. Six more were believed to have been murdered. Eight were believed to be alive, but this left 10 cultists unaccounted for. While awaiting trial, Shoko and his lawyer claimed that he was unfit to stand trial and completely innocent of the attacks, of course. They argued that the attacks were carried out by other cult members without his knowledge. Regardless, he was deemed fit for trial which began in 1996, the same year that the group declared bankruptcy. His trial lasted a staggering eight years. And throughout the first few years of the trial, he rambled on and on about his innocence, 
He often began twitching and had excused himself from the stand several times. Shoko was disruptive and charismatic through the first few years, but his behavior never helped his defense. During the trial, Japanese authorities began demolishing several home facilities, and the Tokyo District Court ordered the cult to pay multi-million dollar settlements to the families of their victims. After years in court, it became clear to Shoko that he wasn't going to win his trial. Despite how long the trial took, Shoko's lawyers argued that they didn't have enough time to prepare for court. The prosecution had gained an incredible amount of evidence against him, along with the testimonies and confessions of fellow Om Shinrikyo followers. In 2000, Shoko took a vow of silence for the rest of his life. While his trial continued for another four years, Shoko refused to speak. Even when he returned to his cell after the court was dismissed, he never spoke a word. At the end of the trial, Shoko was sentenced to death by hanging in 2004. He never appealed the sentence, and by 2006, his fate was sealed. Two years later, he began mentally breaking down behind bars. He refused all contact with his family and followers, and he only ate if he was spoon-fed. He no longer used the bathroom, but instead wore an adult diaper. And for 10 years, Shoko sat silently in his cell, never speaking again, just shitting his pants while waiting for the noose. And on July 6, 2018, his day of reckoning finally came. At 63 years old, the guards led Shoko to the gallows inside the prison courtyard, along with six of his former followers. And Shoko was then hung by the neck until dead. Their bodies were cremated inside the prison and their families were notified hours after their deaths. For many of the victims' families, the death of Shoko and his followers were a long-awaited relief. By the time of his hanging, over two decades had passed since the subway attacks in Tokyo. But at this point, it finally seemed like it was the end of Om Shinrikyo. With a few thousand followers still remaining around the world, the cult somehow carried on without Shoko. They officially renounced Shoko and his actions in 2000 and renamed themselves Aleph. Their most controversial doctrines were removed from their teachings, hoping to de-radicalize their religion and gain a positive image in the media. They also established a compensation fund for the victims of the subway attacks, hoping to be forgiven. But as you can imagine, their reputation has never fully recovered. On March 8, 2007, Aleph split into a Japanese and Russian branches. The Russian offshoot named themselves the Circle of Light. And in 2016, the Russian government declared them a terrorist organization and banned all of its versions. But there are possibly tens of thousands of Russians still practicing. As for the Japanese, roughly 1,500 still practice the teachings, but authorities keep strong surveillance on their operations. In fact, for several years, the cult was required by the law to give authorities a list of all their members and detailed information on all of their assets. In 2017, police raided five of their offices during an investigation on their recruiting practices. After the tragic subway attacks of 1995, Japanese authorities were absolutely not willing to take any sort of risk letting something like that happen again. And in the aftermath of Om Shinrikyo's destruction, Japan won't quickly forget the terror caused by chemical weapons or the charismatic leader who tried to begin the end of the world. At the end of the day, I think the one thing, the one good thing you can really take away from this is the fact that 
these attacks weren't as lethal as they had planned to be. I mean, if they had been, potentially thousands and thousands and thousands of people could have died. It's honestly scary to think about how much worse things could have been. And would that have allowed the the cult to accomplish what they had set out to do? Would it have started some sort of war between the group and the Japanese government? Would it have gone even further from there? It's something, it's a truly terrifying thought. I mean, chemical agents used as weapons is just, it's it's a truly terrifying thing. And the fact that it has been used throughout history is, I, I just think it's like, I mean, it's something that is most of the times invisible to the naked eye. I mean, and you're just unleashing it without people even having a chance to do something about it. It's just, it's one of the most evil ways to go about trying to take out people. I mean, it's just all ways are evil, but like there's just something about chemical agents. I mean, it's so scary to think about. I mean, think about all the crowded places that we go to on a daily basis and events, sporting events, concerts, clubs. I mean, it's just scary to think that if somebody got a hold of a chemical agent, like what kind of damage they could do. And it's a good thing that we have very, very, very strict laws on chemical agents and who can acquire them. And obviously, if you do buy them, you're being, you know, most of the times you're immediately added to a list by the authorities. And I mean, it's very, very difficult to get these types of deadly agents. But the fact that Shoko was able to be as successful as he was, it just just shows how powerful and dangerous this cult was. I mean, he was in cahoots with the Russian government. It's just crazy to me that they didn't figure out what he was actually doing much sooner and stopped him from doing this. I mean, they had to have been surveilling him. They had to have been watching him. It's just crazy to think that he was just you know, leaving Japan, coming back into Japan, going to Australia, going to Russia, going to Germany, going to all these places. And like seemingly nobody bats an eye. Like this guy's going around acquiring weapons, military helicopters, and he's somehow getting this back into Japan. I mean, I don't understand Japanese law or like maybe, you know, I know before this happened, the borders were a little bit different. And obviously this is like, this was really like, what 9-11 is to America, the Tokyo gas attacks. I mean, this was like such a huge wake-up call for the Japanese government and authorities. I mean, they were like, how could we allow this to happen? And, you know, now Japan is one of the safest countries in the entire world. And they they took this very seriously as as they should. And just like you know, the United States took 9-11 very seriously after the fact with security and airports and everything. It's, a, it's the same type of thing. But ultimately, I think Om Shinrikyo, the whole concept of like trying to mesh religion with science and, you know, it just seems like he figured out that if I craft this certain religion and I instill fear into my followers, then they're going to follow me no matter what. And I think that's what he really realizes that he 
was this charismatic guy that really had the image of, you know, this guru. He's so spiritually enlightened. He can levitate. He can do all this shit. And, you know, he found the right people to exploit in order to sort of create his army. And I mean, these people were, were loyal to the very end. It's just, I, I think it's really hard to understand without ever being in a cult, how one could get to that point where you're literally willing to die for your leader. And we've talked about this so many times here throughout the different cults and individuals that attempt to start cults. And you just look at the similarities that are across all of them. They almost all have some sort of religious aspect to it. You know, this is going to help you become enlightened. It's going to help you become closer to God or become a God. And if you follow what I say, then this is the path. And people just, when you're in a place of complete isolation or you're broken or you're, you know, you're just have no direction in your life, it's, it starts to become clear why people jump on. You know, you find a group of like-minded individuals and you start feeling like you matter, you're a part of something, you're a part of something bigger than yourself even. I think that's that's what it is, is like you feel like you are going to do something that could potentially change the course of history. I mean, be a part of bringing about the apocalypse. I mean, I don't know. It, it's one of those things like I get, but at the same time, I'm like, I could never understand how you could allow yourself to get that far, but people do over and over again. And it was no different with Shoko. He had thousands of people. I mean, that's what's so crazy to me is he literally had tens of thousands of members in this religion. And then he was like, oh, I've got all these followers. So why don't I try to up the ante here and I'll just fuck it. I'm just going to take over Japan. And probably he thought, you know, if I could take over Japan then I'm just going to further my empire I mean, this guy really thought that he was going to be the supreme leader of the fucking world at some point, honestly. And he was willing to do whatever it took to get there at the expense of people's lives. He didn't give a shit. And it just shows that the whole religious aspect of it, the whole spiritual aspect of it is just a fucking cover for a truly evil person. And the most evil people use and exploit spirituality and religion to feed their own selfish desires it's truly sick obviously i my heart goes out to the victims of this and their families and those that lost loved ones in this attacks i can't even imagine trying to even wrap your head around this thing and then finding out this crazy nut job show codes behind him i mean it's gotta have been super difficult to deal with but just thankful that nothing like this has happened since and the Japanese government really got it under under control shortly after and p- potentially prevented future attacks from happening. So it's, it's one of those... I mean, I, I don't think a lot of us even think about the idea of potentially dealing with a chemical attack or what that would be like. And, you know, if you ever smell something funny, I mean get away from it i mean that could just be in your own home i i know sometimes i've smelt gas i've had gas leaks in my house and even carbon monoxide terrifies me thinking that 
there could be a carbon monoxide leak or something happening in my house and I could just die in my sleep. Scary. It's absolutely scary stuff. Sometimes the the scariest things are the ones that we can't see. I think Shoko knew that and he knew that was a good, that was an easy way to go about carrying out a mass casualty event like he did. But ultimately, I'm very, very pleased that he received the judgment and ultimately execution he deserved. Don't need anybody like that here on this planet. Anybody that goes around saying they're God, you got to watch out for them because we know how that ends. There's been so many examples throughout history. But with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Let me know your thoughts on Shoko and Om Shinriko. Also, let me know what other cults I should dive into into future episodes. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Lights Out. I'll see you next week. And until then, Lights Out, everybody. <laughs>